0: Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Cause us now as we read and hear your word to hear your voice speaking in it. To hear it for what it is, not the word of men, but the word of God that does its work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, again, would you turn to the book of Ezekiel if you're not already there? Uh, It would probably be best to start in Ezekiel chapter 8. But as last week, we're going to be in several different places in Ezekiel this morning. Ezekiel's probably not on your Advent reading plan, it's uh, not a book that's usually associated with Christmas. But as I hope to show you this morning, it's actually quite. Relevant for Christmas, especially if we read it with the grain of the Bible's storyline about the presence of God with His people. If you're just joining us the, this morning, we're in the middle of a short sermon series called God with Us, the aim of which is to look at the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation through the lens of that overarching theme of the presence of God. And it's been suggested, and I think with much merit, That the presence of God dwelling in a covenant relationship and fellowship with his people is the backbone of the Bible's story. It sets the stage for and gives context as to why it's so important that at the heart of this story, Jesus, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, comes. Or as we sing, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. To look at the story of the Bible in this way helps us to see the cosmic significance of the baby in the manger, the one who is called Emmanuel, God with us. By way of review, a few few weeks ago in Genesis, we saw that God had created humanity and placed them in the Garden of Eden for the purpose of dwelling in perfect fellowship with them. But through their sin, Adam and Eve forfeited the blessing of God's life-giving and sustaining presence, and they were exiled, a condition that every human being shares. Everyone who enters the world enters in a state of exile, alienation from God, born in sin and under God's righteous judgment, cut off from His presence, which is life itself. But God did not just abandon humanity to this eternity of exiled condemnation, God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And God enacted a plan by which he would redeem a people for his own possession so that he might dwell among them in the perfect eternal fellowship that he had designed them for once more. And the the progress of this plan, the restoration of the presence of God with his people is the story of the Bible. Last week, we saw another chapter in this plan as God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, not just to rescue them from their slavery, but to rescue them for his presence that he might dwell among them. He told the Israelites to construct a tabernacle, a a mobile sanctuary set apart to be his dwelling place in their midst. And he established his covenant with them, summarized in this threefold vow, I will be their God, they will be my people and I will dwell among them." But as we saw, there was still a problem. We weren't back in Eden in that perfect relationship. God is holy, but the people of Israel, like everyone else, were not. The fundamental cause of alienation between God and people, the basic cause of their exile from his presence still remains. God was truly present among the people of Israel, but it's a veiled, mediated, conditional, tenuous relationship. He'd graciously given the people his law and instituted provisions to deal with their sin in the form of sacrifices so that he could dwell with them. But God warned people that though He earnestly did desire to dwell among them, if they broke covenant with Him, if they were unfaithful, if they spurned His commandments, then they would again forfeit the blessing of His presence, just like Adam and Eve had. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that Israel's history is largely a tragic downward spiral into more and more ungodliness. Hundreds of years of history that's summarized well by words from 2 Chronicles 36 that we read earlier. The people of Israel were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord, that is the temple, that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God and despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people, until there was no remedy. What God had repeatedly warned Israel about was going to happen. They were going to be cast out of the land, and immeasurably worse, out of God's presence again. Just as He had warned hundreds of years before, God executes this judgment using a foreign nation, the the Babylonian empire, as the instrument of his justice. The Babylonians came and systematically dismantled the kingdom of Judah over the course of about 20 years. First they invaded Judah and made Judah into a vassal state and to ensure compliance they take a number of hostages back to Babylon to serve as collateral. This is when Daniel and his friends are taken to Babylon. And then a few years later, the Babylonians returned. They took more Jews into captivity, including most of the nobility and the skilled workers. And it's at this point in Israel's history that the book of Ezekiel is set. Ezekiel is a Jewish priest, and he's living among the exiles in Babylon, part of the second group of exiles who have gone away. And at the beginning of his prophetic ministry, Jerusalem is still occupied by Jews, the temple is still standing, but the outcome is inevitable. Ezekiel's ministry will not be one of calling the people to repentance per se, but rather one of announcing the coming final stroke of judgment on Judah for her sins. God's presence will leave the temple and the people will be exiled from the place of God's presence once again. The account of these prophetic warnings occupies the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel. The remaining chapters of Ezekiel, however, strike a different note, one of hope, the promise of a restored covenant with God again dwelling among his people, but this time doing so forever, not conditionally, permanently, and irreversibly. So what we'll do this morning is to look at several passages from Ezekiel with uh, some help from other parts of the Old Testament uh, that tell this story that leads us ultimately right up to the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. Two points for us to look at this morning. First, the departure of God's presence, and second, the promise of God's presence. Now, if you're observant, you'll notice in your outline there is a lot of Scripture listed And while we'll not be reading uh, or trying to work through everything in all of these texts, I will warn you that we'll be reading a lot of Bible today. Since I'll be moving from passage to passage without a lot of warning, uh, I don't necessarily expect that you're going to be turning to each of those texts with you. I've put them uh, in the bulletin so that you can go back and look at them later. And just as fair warning, I'm not going to wait for you to get there before I start reading. So if you get frustrated by that, I told you I was going to do that. First, then, the departure of God's presence. We're in Ezekiel chapter 8. At the heart of Ezekiel's prophecies of judgment is a vision that's recounted in chapters 8 to 11. While in Babylon, he has this vision of a heinous sin that is going to lead to the departure of God's presence from among his people. Remember, God had come to dwell first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple in the midst of his people. It made them a distinct people, God dwelling among them. And now we'll see God's presence departing from his people. So if you're there, you look at Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 3. Ezekiel says, "...the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the gateway of the inner court." that's the temple, where was the seat of the image of jealousy which provokes to jealousy? Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the valley, that is the beginning of the book of Ezekiel. Verse five, then he said to me, son of man, lift up your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes toward the north and behold, north of the altar gate in the entrance was this image of jealousy that is an idol set up at the northern gate of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, do you see what they are doing here? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, but you will see still greater abominations." And over the rest of the chapter, God shows Ezekiel increasingly evil examples of the people's idolatry, which is not just being committed out there in the streets and in the fields, but within the temple itself. And it culminates in Ezekiel seeing 25 men standing on the steps of the temple where God dwelt with their back turned to the presence of God, facing east, worshiping the rising sun looking at the, the brightness of the sun, which compared to the glory of God is nothing but darkness, and bowing down to it. The people had entirely forsaken the Lord. They had defiled his sanctuary by turning it into a temple of idols. And God had told the people over and over again, and he told them specifically when the temple had been finished, that he had chosen this to be his dwelling place, that he would be their God, that they would be his people, that he would dwell among them. But he warned them, Second Chronicles 7, that if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I've set before you, if you go and you serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you. And this house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. The wickedness of the people had risen to such an extent that the wrath of God, who is slow to anger, rose against them until there was no remedy. There are people committed to doing evil. And the leaders who were supposed to shepherd and teach and mediate for the people have completely turned away from the Lord as well. The prophets who were to speak only what the Lord says, preach what is false. The priests who were supposed to be holy and lead the people into holiness and help them make atonement for their sin, they profane God's name and pollute his temple. And the princes who are supposed to protect and shepherd the people are bent on shedding blood for their own gain. And unlike at Sinai, where Moses had stood as a mediator, interceded for the people of Israel when they committed gross idolatry, he interceded for them to the point of offering his own life for their lives, saying, blot me out of your book if you will spare them. Now there is no one to intercede. As God says in Ezekiel 22, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me in the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. God does exactly what he warned Israel he would do. First, he removes his glorious presence from the temple. He will no longer dwell with his people. Like Adam and Eve before them, their sin has caused them to forfeit the blessing of his presence. We see this happen in Ezekiel 9, 10, and 11. In this vision, Ezekiel watches as the glory of God, the fiery manifestation of his presence, vacates the temple. Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 4, the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Ezekiel sees the glory of God moving from residing over the cherubim on the ark in the most holy place where he had dwelt enthroned, and now he moves out of the most holy place to the doorway of the temple building. Chapter 10, verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, and they stood at the entrance of the east gate, the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. Now the glory of God's presence moves from the entrance of the temple to the eastern gate, the main gate, the temple courts. And then Ezekiel 11.23, the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city, that is the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. And then the vision ends. Ezekiel has seen the glory of God systematically moving out of the temple to the east until it ends up outside of the city on the Mount of Olives. Ezekiel's vision ends and the glory of God's presence has departed from Israel. And so while some Israelites are yet in the land here, their exile has already begun. God's presence has left them. And then it's only a matter of time before just as God had warned, they are exiled again from the place that he had given them. We read this in 2 Kings 24. Because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. Sounds quite a bit like Genesis 3. As I said earlier, the Babylonians have already taken some of the Israelites, like Ezekiel, into captivity, and they had set up a sort of a puppet state ruled by King Zedekiah. But Zedekiah, who apparently was not the sharpest tool in the shed, rebelled against the king of Babylon which is a bad idea. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes and lays siege to Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't like when the agreements he brokers are broken. He lays siege to Jerusalem, and then the Babylonians, after two years, take the city, and we read in Second Kings 25 that they burned the house of the Lord. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem, and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, they carried into exile in Babylon. Ezekiel and his fellow countrymen are already in captivity in Babylon, and they receive word of this in Ezekiel 33. In the 12th year of our exile, in the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has been struck down. So the Jews are taken into captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and it leaves us in much the same place as we were in Genesis 3, God's people cast out from God's presence because of of their sin. Yet God's desire and purpose to dwell in the midst of His people for His own possession remains. News of the fall of Jerusalem is the turning point in Ezekiel's ministry, and now His prophecies will strike a note of hope. Promise. The exile was not a glitch in God's plan. In fact, somewhat incredibly, it was a part of God's plan. It was a means by which God was showing us that we need more than just a set of external regulations for our worship and morality in order to be reconciled to God and dwell in His presence. We needed something far more radical than what the law could accomplish. We need total, internal, eternal transformation. We need the guilt of our sin dealt with, not just temporarily through sacrifices, but once and for all. We need the corruption of our sin to be cleansed, not just temporarily through ritual washing or sincere attempts at obedience, but by being truly internally changed so that we don't just do what is right and good, but that we actually desire it. We need, in the words of Dallas Willard, a renovation of the heart. And we need all of this, not only so that God may dwell among us, but so that we will never again be cast out of His presence. And the rest of Ezekiel is about God's promises of what He's going to do to rescue and restore and redeem and renew and again come to dwell among His people in a new covenant. So that's where we turn now to the promise of God's presence. Chapters 34 to 39 of Ezekiel, we find God's promises about this new covenant uh, which outline how he's going to systematically deal with sin and guilt and corruption and alienation that has created this barrier between God and humanity from the garden onward. We can't look closely at everything that's promised in these chapters. For now, I just want to draw out some of the elements of God's new covenant promises here that culminate in His promise to dwell among His people again, and more than just again, but to dwell among them forever. So turn with me to Ezekiel 34. At the beginning of Ezekiel 34, God announces judgment against the faithless leaders of Israel, who He calls Israel's shepherds. Announcing judgment, what he's been doing for the first 33 chapters, is kind of an odd way to begin a promise, but if we keep reading, we find something extraordinary. God doesn't just say that he's going to replace the faithless shepherds with faithful shepherds. He says in Ezekiel thirty-four eleven, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak." God doesn't just say that he's going to send better shepherds to replace the bad ones. He doesn't say he's going to find someone else, say like Moses, to shepherd the people. He says that he himself will come to be their shepherd, to regather them, to bring them out of exile and slavery in a new exodus, to feed them on what is good, to strengthen and heal and save them. And the emphatic use of I here, I will, I myself will do this is striking. God promises that he himself is going to come to be present with them in order to redeem them to be a people for his presence. And It sounds much like the promise we read in Isaiah 7, the promise of a coming one who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Then later in Ezekiel 34, we also read this. verse 23, God says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall shepherd them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. And I will make with them a covenant of peace. Verse 30, and they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. And you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. And I am your God, declares the Lord God. You hear all that covenant language here. God is going to establish a new covenant. He calls it a covenant of peace. Not just the absence of conflict and alienation, but the presence of shalom, the perfect and eternal wholeness and flourishing in God's presence for which we were created. But did you notice that curiously, after so emphatically saying that he himself was going to be the one to shepherd his people, now just a few verses later, he says, my servant David is going to shepherd them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. So what's that about? Who's the... Who's the shepherd? Is it this David character or is it God himself? And the answer, of course, is yes. And we get a hint here that this redeemer that God has promised will be both an anointed king in the line of David and at the same time will be God himself who comes to be with us, David's son and David's Lord. And this shepherd king, both Davidic and divine, will come to be with us in order that we may be with him, dwelling with him in this new covenant of peace forever. But, again, as we said, the problem of sin yet remains. I mean, if God sends this rescuer, even if he himself comes, the people are still sinful. Humanity is still separated from the perfect fellowship with God. They were designed by their sin. And if the people are to dwell with God and He with them, it will require a permanent solution to both the guilt and condemnation of their sin and the internal corruption of their sin so that they would never again need to be cast from God's presence. And this is what's promised in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. God says, talking about this promise of, The new covenant, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. God promises to cleanse his people from the guilt incurred by their sin and idolatry. Earlier in the book in chapter 16 in one of the brief glimpses of promise that we get in the first half of the book, we read that in establishing this new covenant with the people, God says, I will atone for you for all that you have done. He doesn't say, I will then require you to make atonement for all that you have done, and then I'll dwell among you. He says, I will atone for you for all that you have done. And again here in chapter 36, I will cleanse you from all your uncleannesses and from your idols. The law has been flipped. Now Israel is not making atonement for their sin. Now they are not washing themselves so that it might be clean. Now it is God who is atoning for their sins, it is God who is cleansing them. And so sin will be atoned for and guilt removed. What about the internal corruption that would surely lead them to further sin and rebellion? God's going to take care of that too. Verse 26, of Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell on the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. In order to bring about the permanence of this new covenant relationship, one which will not be subject to the conditions and the curses of the first one, God will not merely atone for and cleanse and forgive the guilt of sin, nor will he merely give people the instruction book on how they should live, as if he was saying, okay, I forgive you, now go and try harder. But leaving them effectively unchanged... The new covenant is not the promise of a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance. The new covenant is the promise of a second life. God promises here not just forgiveness and a clean slate, but that He will actually make people new. He will give them hearts that have been made alive, not dead hearts of stone, but living hearts of flesh. And even more crucially, He explains that this new heart will come because. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This promised heart transplant is actually a promise that God himself is going to come to dwell within us. Not just among us, but within us. That the sanctuary of God's presence won't be a building, but it will be his people. It will be a sanctuary that has been sanctified, cleansed, made holy through the atonement and cleansing that he himself will accomplish. And he will come to dwell in that new temple, and he will not just give people his commandments on how they ought to act, but by dwelling in them and giving them life, he will actually cause them to walk in his ways with his law written on their hearts. This all culminates in Ezekiel 37. God gives this promise about those who have been atoned for and forgiven and cleansed and brought to life by his spirit dwelling in them. Starting in verse 23 of Ezekiel 37, we read it earlier, they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And my servant David shall be king over them, They shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Verse 26, and I will make a covenant of peace with them and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them and I will set them in their land and multiply them and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. God promises a new covenant in which he himself would come to shepherd his people, in which he himself would cleanse and atone for and sanctify his people, in which he himself would come to dwell not just among but within his people and cause them to walk in his ways and never be cast out from his presence again. And in that day, God says, I will set my sanctuary, the place of my dwelling, in their midst forevermore. God himself promised to come and to cleanse and forgive and sanctify and dwell within his people so that they might dwell in his presence forever. And he with them in this perfect, unbroken, and unbreakable fellowship. He would be their God. They would be his people. And he would dwell among them. And then in the final chapters of the book, Ezekiel 40 through 48, Ezekiel has a very strange vision. It's a vision of a new temple. In many ways, it's like the old one, the one destroyed by the Babylonians, but it's also quite different. And he's shown this temple piece by piece. As he tours, each part is measured by an angel. And compared even to the grandeur of Solomon's temple, the temple in Ezekiel's vision is gigantic. And at the center of this temple, like the tabernacle, like the first temple, is the most holy place, and it's shaped like a perfect cube, just like in the tabernacle, just like in the temple. And then Ezekiel 43, we read this, he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, listen for how many times he talks about the east here, he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, the way he left. The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city, the vision that I had seen by the Kabar Canal, and I fell on my face. And as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I heard one speaking to me out of the temple, and he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne, the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. Just as Ezekiel saw a vision of God's presence leaving the temple to the east, now he sees in a vision the future return of the glory of God's presence to his sanctuary, the place where he will dwell with his people forever. And the vision of this new temple expands to be a vision of a great city of extraordinary proportions, a new Jerusalem. Twelve tribes of Israel are arrayed all around the city, just like they were around the tabernacle, three on each side. And the very last line of the book of Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel's vision of this new temple and this new city is this, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. That's the promised hope of God's people, dwelling with their covenant God forever. As the Old Testament draws to a close, we see God's people waiting for the fulfillment of these promises. After 70 years in exile, the people of Israel returned to the land, and perhaps they thought that the fulfillment of these things was close at hand. But when they return, there's there's no king to sit on David's throne. To shepherd them in righteousness, nor have the people undergone the internal transformation that they need, the heart transplant required for God to dwell with them eternally. In fact, many of the same sins that characterized them before the exile continue to characterize them after it. They do rebuild the temple, but when they do so, it pales in comparison to the grandeur of Solomon's temple, leading some of the old men who had seen Solomon's temple to weep. at How small the temple looked in comparison. Nothing compared to Solomon's temple, not to mention the temple of Ezekiel's vision. And more importantly, when this temple is finished, the glory of God does not descend to fill the most holy place, as it had in the tabernacle, as it had in the first temple, as was prophesied in Ezekiel's vision. And so while the captivity in Babylon is over, there is still a very real sense in which God's people remained in exile, still alienated from God's life giving presence by the barrier of sin. But God continues to speak to his people after the exile. Through the prophet Haggai, God tells the people that he has not forgotten these promises. Fear not, he says, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts, and the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, shalom. Shalom a new and everlasting covenant of peace that he had promised. Through the prophet Zechariah 2, God spoke saying, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And on that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God." And the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, outlines both the ongoing sinfulness of the people, but also reinforces the promises of God. And in Malachi 3, we read this promise Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Old Testament ends and God's revelation ceases for 400 years, but the faithful remnant of God's people have God's promises. Behold, I am coming, declares the Lord. And so they waited, trusting, hoping, praying, longing, O come, O come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the son of god appear a cry of longing to which god's promises reply rejoice rejoice emmanuel shall come to you o israel let's pray father we long for the coming of that day we We worship you and give you glory that you did indeed bring the Lord Jesus to fulfill your promises, and we long for the day when he comes again to make all things new. As we celebrate his first advent, we look and long for his second, waiting on you. Lord, stir up our hearts for the love of Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. Please stand.